breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me. This episode is particularly meaningful, particularly poignant and solemn for me as we talk about 20 years after 9-11. Our country commemorated, remembered, reflected, learned, relearned, thought about what happened on 9-11-2001 this weekend, thought about the heroes, thought about those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, the families who woke up that morning and life changed for all of us. But for some, their loved ones never came home. For over 400 first responders, their loved ones never came home. And anniversaries are, you know, it's an interesting phenomena. Do you try to use it for unity? Do you try to learn from it? Some people feel that it's a negative energy. I think it's positive in the cycle of life, the cycle of calendars, days, months, years, that anniversaries allow us, if we do it right, to prevent history from repeating itself, as the old sage goes, that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And when we learn from history, we're talking about learning about those things that are valuable, learning about those things that make it all worthwhile. The fact that this life on this earth is but a dot in the timeline of our soul, if you believe in God, if you believe in that trajectory of life, whatever it might be for your own faith, if you will. And on this 9-11, I can't help but think about when I wrote my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, I insisted I could not help but open the first few lines talking about 9-11 and the first few paragraphs talking about how that drove my mission. Our mission for Muslim reform against Islamism, to treat the disease of political Islam, not just the symptom of terrorism, opens. As a Navy veteran, I've wondered at times what it was like for my country when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, what it really felt like to hear such shocking news over the radio. It was not until 9-11 that I had any real sense of what that day must have been like. However, in many ways, I believe that history will view the 9-11 attacks as far worse than Pearl Harbor. The attack on Pearl Harbor, as terrible as it was, was military in nature and largely targeted our U.S. Navy, those whose duty it is to preserve and protect their country. While 9-11 was an attack by terrorists upon civilians, and it was executed by men who claimed to do so in the name of God. As a Muslim, it's hard for me to put into words just how horrific this is, how deeply I believe it betrays my faith and the depth of sorrow I feel for the victims. Like all Americans, I feel that the day will always be with me, and as a Muslim, it forced me to confront certain realities. And once the shock of the attack began to wear off, my next response was pure rage. I wanted to get even with the bastards who had done this, and what added to my fury was that they had done this in the name of my faith of Islam. I had to find a way to address how angry I was about what had been done, 
and at the same time make it clear to my fellow Americans that true Islam, our Islam, not their Islam, was not about, was not what was represented by these madmen. I had no idea. I, I, I truly, I, I thought it wouldn't be that hard since it was my reality. What a big job that would really be. But in fact, it become a second calling for me. My first being medicine. The need to make the world aware of the difference between Islam and Islamism. And to the extent that George W. Bush was right, they do hate us for our freedom. <laughs> you know, as I wrote that, I was thinking to myself, you know, I waited for other Muslims to come forward, to unequivocally denounce the actions of the 9-11 terrorists and to protest the very idea that Islam could be used as the excuse for such acts. Some Muslims came forward to denounce the 19 terrorists and their acts, but they were more than a few times when it was done with a caveat of, uh, yeah, yes, I believe it's terrible what happened to America, but one thing, one must look at U.S. policy in the Middle East. It's support of Israel. The, the, I call them the we condemn terrorism but crowd. The but implies somehow that America had it coming. Somehow that America meddled where it shouldn't have, and it had it coming. The moral equivalencies, if you will. And what really, really irked me, and as I'm sure many of you have been listening to this program before know, is one of my main issues in this work, is that at the core of that, of that dismissal is not only an apologetic, a denial of the reality of the core source of the Al-Qaeda's of the world. But the reality is, it's a moral corruption. A moral corruption that begins to look at understanding somehow excusing evil. A moral corruption that sits in the bastion of freedom and hates the very country that gave them freedom that no Muslim-majority country ever could have. So at the core is the cancer of political Islam. That Islam that should be the nation state, Sharia should be the law of the land, the constitution should be the Quran. That's their utopia. And therefore, since they came to a country that's not that utopia, therefore it must have problems that it deserves. But our Islam doesn't have problems. Our Islam is utopian. Even though there isn't one system on the planet that actually even comes close to America's success or the West's success under an Islamic banner. And I'm sure they find many excuses. They blame the West. They blame conspiracy theories. But at the end of the day, it is a moral corruption and actually a supremacism of the very belief that political Islam or Islamism, the Islamic State, is what they want. So even though they came here, and I'm talking about Muslims. Not all. Obviously, there are many, many Muslims that have been here third, fourth generation and are as American as anybody. But being American is not only having a house and a cell phone and a car, the material things. Being American is believing in the social contract that is so exemplified by Patriot's Day, which is 9-11. So where were the other Muslims? Unfortunately, the ones that they picked from the 
I don't know how much Google there was on 9 9-11, 9-12, 9-13-01, but the ones they picked from searching for Muslims were the Islamist establishment. Those who were not American first, those who did not really feel for their countrymen, but just felt for maybe some human beings that might have done some wrong but had it coming. God forbid. That's the Islamists. That's the Islamists. What have we learned from 9-11? You look in today's media. We'll talk about Matt Continetti's piece in the Free Beacon later, but you look around in the media and it's all self-loathing. Washington Post articles, foreign policy pieces, Atlantic pieces talking about how America and its response to 9-11 was an abysmal failure. The care Islamists continue to push the fact that somehow they are the victims pulling that victim card again. They are the victims of 9-11, not the ideology victimizing the West. Still to this day, they haven't even begun the first step in the 12-step program they need in coming to terms with the addiction they have to political Islam and Islamist supremacism and their Sharia state. Personally, as an intensely patriotic Muslim physician who was on a Navy scholarship through medical school, served for 11 years, I'd always believed that one of our primary missions was to protect the innocent from the very kind of evil that attacked innocent civilians on 9-11. For the Islamists to twist all of that, and somehow say that it was policy-related, it was conspiracy-related. And this is, by the way, the local newspaper in Arizona. Arizona Republic interviewed a number of imams here locally who cited conspiracy theories about Jews not being in the towers. Conspiracy theories about Al-Qaeda being an American creation. Seriously? On a, a, a month after the attack, in a piece on November, two months, on November 4th, 2001, a piece entitled, U.S. Muslims Torn Between Loyalty to Islam and Loyalty to America. The title was a fair article because it interviewed the imams and leaders of Muslim groups, mosques in the entire state of Arizona. And most of them were horrifically anti-American conspiratorial and represented their Islamist ideas pretty well. Did they represent Muslims here in Arizona? Well, absolutely not. And that article was a stimulus to what formed our organization and was the stimulus that tipped me over into the need to do this work. And I've been dedicated ever since now for 20 years. I called the reporters that did that story and said, hey, where did where'd you get these crazy people? He goes, I'm sorry, this is the, these are the imams. This is who the mosques told us to talk to. Now, obviously, they've become more sophisticated since then, knowing which imams to quote-unquote fire and push to the back away from the microphones that reveal the crazy, radical, hysterical ideology that drives much of the radicalization. But at the end of the day, 
This is the core of Islamist ideologies, to divide the world into the land of Islam and the land of war, Darar Islam and Darar Harb. It was slow going finding those with the resolve, the courage, and the focus on ideology to admit that our leadership, while they may condemn terrorism, they may condemn targeting innocents in restaurants and shopping malls and elsewhere, when it comes to war, they not only would never don an American uniform, they actually had, if you look at the fatwas and religious opinions in the Assembly of Muslim Jurists, with their Sharia interpretations, they actually recommended Muslims not to serve in the U.S. military. They recommended Muslims not to contribute to the wars against Muslims. Look at the tweets of Ilhan Omar, 17, 18 years later, when she ran for her first campaign in the House, as she called Americans terrorists in Somalia, as she cited that 9-11 was Somebody did something, however way she offensively said it. Yeah, that somebody was radical Muslims. That something was an act of heinous terrorism against non-combatants. And after that article, I wrote an op-ed back in 2001, appeared in November 11, 2001, about how many Muslims do not have a conflict between being American and being Muslim, but we have interpreted, we have modified, reformed the interpretations into what we feel is a genuine interpretation of our faith. There are imams who apologized, imams who made excuses, and very few, if any, in the leadership that actually stood up and took responsibility for the ideas that created. I mean, later we would end up having to target with a drone Imam Awlaki. Anwar Awlaki was born and raised in the United States, ran mosques in San Diego, Fairfax, all over the country. And then as he became more radicalized, left the United States to go to Yemen to declare war on the United States along with the rest of Al-Qaeda and quickly became a spiritual leader of Al-Qaeda. In that piece, I wrote, which became sort of the foundational launching pad into the mission statement of our American Islamic Forum for Democracy and ultimately a list of 17 ideas that Muslims that believed and agreed with me needed to sign on to, it included the belief and the primary support of the U.S. Constitution, the protection of American security, the need and the desire to defeat political Islamic states, recognize the state of Israel, and other principles that are key to separating the Islamists from the non-Islamists. In the piece that was published, which I got a ton of positive comments from Americans and also a lot of hate from radical Islamists running groups like the Muslim Student Association or the Islamic Society of North America or even in cultural organizations. And we'll talk about that in a sec. 
I said the seditious and treasonous ranting and raving of a few ungrateful imams or Palestinians brings an unspeakable revulsion from me and all Muslims with an inalienable love of America. If I had been aboard the USS Cole, which was cited in the original piece that I responded to, I would have had no hesitation in sending the approaching murderers to their martyrdom. Any U.S. citizen calling an attack on a ship of his own country that killed 17 sailors and fellow citizens and attacked by martyrs, or not necessarily wrong, is outrageous. American freedom and all its glory is at the core of Islamic life and principles. From this Muslim's perspective, American Muslims would certainly fully endorse and enlist proudly in every aspect of Operation Enduring Freedom. The U.S. Constitution embodies the one and only form of government that allows them to practice their faith like no other country in the world. And those who are comfortable with being unequivocally loyal should be honest enough to simply leave. November 9th, 2001, Arizona Republic. And on this 20th anniversary, I think it's important to know Operation Enduring Freedom was about going to Afghanistan to find and decimate Al-Qaeda because they launched that operation, we believe, from, from Afghanistan. And now as we left with a vacuum that quickly got filled by the Taliban, all the good that we had done, not much left behind. You can't take away the 20 years of help, aid, lives saved in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Yes, we left it with a horrible taste in their mouth as we gave the Taliban weapons and finances and other things that are continuing to threaten our security. But again, that's not the American public. That's not the hero's reason to blame, but rather politicians of today, the Biden administration, the progressivists that drove this kind of horrifically negligent malpractice in the way we withdrew. But again, the Islamists are quiet about that, aren't they? The Council on American-Islamic Relations last month has said nothing negative about American withdrawal. They are elated to see the Taliban take over. They're not defending women's rights and groups that have been tortured as the Taliban took over. They're not asking for, as stupid the requests are from the Biden administration and State Department, first thing was it noted, wasn't the autocracy, but rather there was no women in their leadership. Okay, yeah, that is a sign of a problem, a symptom of a problem, but really, Secretary Blinken, that's the first thing that uh, tipped you off that they're pretty radical. How about how about their torture of and, and, and killing of folks that used to work with America, of, of leaders of the rebels in the Pashkor area and elsewhere? And after I wrote the piece supporting Operation Enduring Freedom and supporting America against the Islamists and calling a spade a spade that the ideologies would created these monsters, to my disbelief, there were actually those in the local and national Muslim communities who were opposed to what I had to say, who put Islam above their country, especially the one that had global political movements. I was at a loss to understand how they could do this since it was the U.S. more than any other nation that gave them the right to worship in which way, whatever way they chose, which was the part of the point in my piece. The Islamists are the ones driving that response and driving the response to my work. And the more they attack, the more I realize we have a big problem. And that's the lesson from 
that 9-11 was about the jihad. The jihad was exposed because Al-Qaeda decided in their militant, utilitarian kind of way that the more chaos there was, the more there'd be a counter-reaction that then continued to spiral the world into a drain that they could then fill in. The Arab awakening is a good example of more spirals. The dictators are a massive problem in the Middle East. A movement of people to the streets was a sign of hope of millions. But then when it got inflamed with terror, genocide, thousands killed on a week-to-week basis in Syria, Yemen, Libya, and elsewhere, the Islamists were able to fill that void like a nuclear winter that they could fill rather than those who believe and be able to set up a new civic society and civil society of organizations. And the Islamists will do anything, anything possible to try to prevent the advancement of ideas of individuality, liberty, and freedom. And it became pretty clear to me that the layers of radicalization, the layers of obstacles against reform and movements of Muslims embracing modernity, embracing Western ideas, was inhibited by tribalism, fear, the tools used by Islamists to suppress dissent, the synergy of the Islamists with dictatorships in the Middle East, including monarchs, the synergy of the Islamists with far-left movements across the planet and what I've described to all of you here as the red-green axis. And in that axis creates a huge amount of power between the left media in America, media of, of, of totalitarian states like Russian media, Iran's Khomeinist radical press TV, Al Jazeera from Qatar and its Islamist fealty with the Muslim Brotherhood, and then media across other dictatorships, Syria's television, and on and on across the Middle East and Muslim-majority countries' demonization of the West, and you have an industry, a plurality of the world, involved in countering the ideas and threatened mostly by the ideas of freedom. So I thought, but still, if, you, if we build an, a Muslim and Islamic defense of freedom, they will come. That's what I thought. Some have come, the courageous those who truly love the West, love freedom, and believe and understand that our religion needs reform, have begun to come in the 20 years. And that's our Muslim Reform Movement. Check out the website, muslimreformmovement.org or aifdemocracy.org. But it's been slow going. But we've shifted more from a popular populist movement where we thought thousands upon thousands would be marching through the streets in defense of free speech against the terrorists of ISIS and Charlie Hebdo and the attacks, the terrorists of 7-7-2005 in London, the terrorists of the Paris attacks, the terrorists of Nidal Hassan in 11-5-2009. But all of these 
are not lone wolves. That concept is pathetic. There's never a lone wolf. They get radicalized by the ideas around them that they embrace. And the jihad, the jihad has continued. We might decimate Al-Qaeda one year and it comes back as a hydra. ISIS might be decimated, but it comes back as ISIS-K. Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda in Africa comes and goes and comes and goes because jihad has not gone away. The Turkish military, perfect example of how jihad does not go away. Turkish military claims to be about protecting Turkey. Since the AKP now has begun a cultural shift in Turkey away from secularism of its last hundred years to Islamism of the AKP, which is the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey, it is now beginning to Islamize more so than ever as Erdogan tries to be the caliphate in waiting that he has always dreamt of being. Erdogan himself called democracy like a train. When he was the mayor of Istanbul, he had a famous quote that he said, democracy is like a train. You get on it to get to where you want to go and then you get off. That's exactly what he's doing as he's imprisoned or tortured over 20,000 university professors across Turkey as they have prevented dissent in any media against the Turkish government. I mean, I still am, I, I cannot believe there's been no questioning of Turkey's role in NATO and what the heck they are doing in there still, as they are not a democracy anymore. They've been now run by a party that is all about political Islam and about jihad. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, example is when the Trump administration pulled out the few hundred troops that we had in Syria. You remember the Turkish military went in and started slaughtering Kurds within a few days. The videos that they started spreading of them going into Kurdish towns in Syria. They continued to repetitively use the term jihad. Kurds are Muslims. They're Sunni Muslims, just like the Turks are Sunni Muslims. But when they fought them, they feel that their Kurdish nationalism makes them apostates. And one of the reasons there's hardly any terrorism that comes from Kurds and the Kurdish peoples is because their fealty for their Kurdish nationalism supersedes their global desires of any type of political Islamic caliphate or adherence to the other Islamist movements. This is key. So important to understanding the hydra that is jihad. Bottom line is, is then you have a Saudi pilot who's training in Florida just last year. Decides to commit an act of terror against American soldiers. And the Saudis are like, oh, how does, we, we don't know how he got through. This was, uh, we did not know he's radicalized. Oh, really? When your own military folks are being trained that if they ever went to war, for example, against Iran, which might be a legitimate war, right? The Saudis, the Iranians want to create a Shia hegemony of their Khomeinism, and that might include an offensive incursion into the Arabian Peninsula. So we must prevent that kind of conflict. But the Khomeinists would consider that jihad, and the Saudi military would consider that jihad. Now, they're starting to shift, I heard, into starting to talk more about Saudi nationalism rather than jihadism. 
a very important point if we're going to reform. When I served in the U.S. Navy, it was because I wanted to preserve and protect the U.S. Constitution and everything it stood for, because I wanted to preserve and protect every American who swore allegiance to this country and give them the protections afforded by our government, military, and our Constitution. It wasn't about jihad. My jihad, my personal jihad, is between me and God, but the jihad branded as a military conflict needs to be put into the dustbin of history. That branding needs reform. I have friends with their first name jihad. I don't believe their parents intended them to be named Holy War. So there is a way to say that if jihad is referenced as war in the Quran, that's no longer relevant today because secular nation states are far better societal setups for government and society than a jihadi state. But when you look at radicalization of Muslims, the other lesson learned since 9-11 is that jihadi states from Turkey to Saudi Arabia to Pakistan's Islamic Republic to Iran and on and on are one of the primary cancers of radicalization of Muslims. You're not going to continue to surgically fix the problem of cells and terror operatives that arise from ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Shabab of Somalia and others. You're going to have to not only kick and cut the head of the hydra, but kill the entire snake of Islamic theocracy. And you can do that while still maintaining a respect for the faith of Islam. If anything, that's what the West taught us. That's what Americanism taught us, that religious liberty is best when you prevent the establishment of religion via the government. That's what the First Amendment and freedom of religion is all about. That's the lesson of 9-11, that when you have a horrific symptom like Al-Qaeda, it doesn't come out of thin air. It comes out of a movement a jihadi Islamist movement that needs to be countered, that needs to be defeated, and needs to be reformed. I want to end this commemorative podcast on 20 years after 9-11, read you something I wrote in an advertisement to my fellow Americans one year after 9-11. And Muslim leaders here in, in Scottsdale asked me to write it for them, And we did it, and most of them became strong supporters of our organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. Members of the Muslim community in Scottsdale on this solemn day of remembrance, prayers, and meditation recall that a year ago today, I wrote this on 9-11-2002, but it's so true 19 years later, now at 20 years. Recall that a year ago today, Barbaric acts of murder and destruction fell upon our citizens and our cities. On September 11, 2001, 19 criminals and their organization directed a sneak attack upon our nation and everything for which we all stand. The perpetrators of this act violated the laws of God and outraged the sensibilities of all. They cowardly murdered thousands of our fellow citizens, innocent men, women, and children. They only succeeded in strengthening our resolve and in pulling us together. Our freedom was the target and we shall defend it. 
Our democracy was their enemy, and we shall maintain it. Our unity was their envy, and they shall continue to suffer from it. We shall neither forget nor forgive in this life, and they shall contend with the judgment of God in the next. To the victims belong our sorrow and tears. To their families we direct our prayers to God for his favor and blessing in easing their pain and healing their injuries. To our country we stand by all our fellow citizens in unity and prayer for our national strength, justice, freedom, and peace. God bless you all. Hug your family this week. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for letting the world know that there are some Muslims out there, and I think a majority, some of them are sleeping, but a majority that love the West, that love America, that love what we stand for, and are ready to be at the head of the spear, at the tip of the spear when fighting political Islam and theocratic Islamism. We're here to stay as long as we have breath in our lungs. Spread the news of this podcast. Find us on iTunes and elsewhere. Follow me on Twitter at Reform This Radio and at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R. J A S S E R. God bless and stay safe. We'll see you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.